Hattie McDaniel. McDaniel, probably most well known for her role as Mammy in Gone with the Wild. Gone with the Wild. <laughs> Gone with the wild? Are you mixing her up with Christopher Hello and welcome to episode three of Cats Over Kids. Jared, how how are you feeling? We're already on episode three. Does this feel like a magic experience for you? Magic experience? Yeah. I can't believe we're already recording our third episode. Are you excited? Of course I am. You don't look really excited. I'm ecstatic. His face is very ecstatic looking right now. Yeah, that's the problem with podcasts. You can't see my face right now, all the faces I'm making at everybody. Oh, and his, and his uh, just his beautiful features, his scruffy beard, and that giant boogering on your nose. I left that in there for you, <laughs> just so you'd say something. Oh, it's so attractive. Been saving that one for later. We call that bears in the cave. Right? Oh, this is a Kodiak bear. Oh, man. That, that, so that's a good code word. It's like we're at a restaurant and be like, you got a bear in your cave. And he'll be like, my left cave or the right cave. And then he'll inevitably but I don't think he'll pick really, the wrong cave. <laughs> I don't think that's a code word. Like, I didn't come up with that. I got that from someone else. Hey, oh. you got a bear in your cave. So. Well, it's better than a. Did I get it? Than a kid in your vagina. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. The kids aren't in the vagina. I know. <laughs> I went to Catholic school. I don't know anything about anatomy. <laughs> Uh, well, anyways, 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 so today's episode, we're going to discuss um, child-free people in history. So we've got five individuals who are sadly no longer with us, but who have made impression on history and happened to never have children. But before that, we're going to do our weekly feature of Cat of the Week, which is something you can always message us uh, on Instagram or maybe through email at catsoverkids at gmail.com. Give us a photo of your cat and a little brief bio about them, and we'll select one to talk about, and we'll also post it on our Insta. But since we still have our cats to get through, our next Cat of the Week is one of ours. It is Biscuit who is uh, our one of our pastry kitties. He was found as an abandoned stray in the middle of cold November in 2007. His previous owner did him wrong and declawed his front paws. That still... I'm still mad about it. It's very awful. And now he has arthritis. I don't know if that's related to that or not. But anyway, no one came forward to claim him. I had tried for a couple months to find his owner and ended up keeping him. He quickly established himself as the alpha cat and became best buddies with our now dearly departed Cupcake. He's extremely talkative and will let you know what's up and what's on his mind. He loves food, catnip, being spooned, making really aggressive biscuits on your throat, grooming cannoli, sunbathing, and being a cranky old man. Francis Bacon, born January 22, 1561, 
and died at age 65 in April 1626, is a Renaissance-era philosopher, essayist, historian, intellectual reformer, English statesman, and champion of modern science. Besides sharing a last name with the beloved breakfast dish, bacon is best attributed to developing or either contributing to the scientific method. It depends what kind of historian you are and whose side you're on. Regardless, he definitely played an influence in the scientific revolution and promoted empiricism, which is a theory that knowledge comes only or primarily from sensory experience. In his 65 years, he accomplished quite a lot. He enrolled in Trinity College at 12 years old, and after completing his studies, enrolled in a law program at 15. It kind of makes me embarrassed for how much I slacked off as a teenager. What was I doing at 15? Probably writing bad fanfiction and rewatching The Matrix three times a day. Bacon was a member of Parliament for about four decades and was very involved in law, politics, and the royal court. At 36, he was counsel to Queen Elizabeth. He was knighted and became Attorney General in 1613. This role is answerable to Parliament and is also the chief legal advisor to the Crown. He married an heiress, Alice Barnum, who was 31 years his junior. And after he had died, she remarried and, by all accounts, had no children by her new husband either. Good for her. Anyway, a couple years after their marriage, Bacon achieved the title of Lord Chancellor. Apparently, that's a really big deal. Unfortunately, in 1621, he was accused of accepting bribes and was impeached by Parliament. Some claim he was set up by his enemies, but regardless, was found guilty of treason, arrested, and fined 40,000 pounds which, by my vague Google calculations, would be close to about 2.5 million pounds today. Fortunately for him, he was released from imprisonment after about four days and the fee was lifted, but the ordeal left him disgraced, and he managed to keep his titles by the skin of his teeth. Despite that, it did not dissuade him from his intellectual pursuits, and eventually he died of pneumonia, apparently a result of studying the effects of freezing on the preservation of meat a man dedicated to his truth and passions until his dying day. We can attribute the organized system of knowledge acquisition to him, as well as his contributions to modernizing the experiences of human knowledge. Bacon remains proof that children do not need to be your legacy. Nearly 500 years later, his name, history, and accomplishments live on. Hattie McDaniel McDaniel, probably most well-known for her role as Mammy in Gone with the Wind, was an actress, singer, songwriter, and a comedian. The youngest of 13 children, she was born to formerly enslaved parents. Her mother was a gospel singer, and her father served in the Civil War. She and some of her siblings were also accomplished singers and actors, and spent her early years performing in minstrel shows and other touring ensembles. In the late 1920s, she recorded many of her songs and was well-established as an entertainer, but when the stock market crash hit in 1929, the only work she could find was being a bathroom attendant at a club. However, she managed to convince the owner to allow her to start performing and within a couple of years became a regular performer. She joined three of her siblings in a move to Los Angeles in 1931 and worked as a maid and a cook in between acting gigs. She ended up performing as a bossy maid character named Hi Hi Hattie on a radio program Variety Hour, and despite its great popularity, she still had work on the side as a maid because her radio salary was so low. Throughout her career, she performed 74 individual maid roles. When she died, she was in the midst of filming a TV series called Beulah, 
based on her popular radio show that earned her equivalent of about $9,500 a week. Beulah was a maid. In 1934, she joined the Screen Actors Guild and began to attract attention to her talents and started landing larger film roles. Even though she gained more film credits and was popular in her own as an actress, her roles were largely her being a maid. Some members of the black community criticized her for these roles, but consider this was in a time where legal segregation still existed and Jim Crow laws prevented her from attending the Atlanta premiere of Gone with the Wind, a movie where her performance earned her an Oscar. At the very least, she was able to find success as an amazing entertainer, and make black actors more visible in the industry. She addressed these criticisms in 1947 in an article she published in The Hollywood Reporter. I have never apologized for the roles I play, she wrote. She also said she'd rather be paid $7,000 a week playing a maid role instead of being paid $7 to actually be one. While it doesn't make it right that Hollywood perpetuated stereotypes, at the very least, McDaniel gained tremendous success with her acting and remains an inspiration to this day. She expressed gratitude for her opportunities and was exceptionally gracious when confronted with horrible racist actions. Clark Gable wanted to boycott the Atlanta premiere unless McDaniel could attend, but she convinced him to go anyway. She was able to attend the premiere in Hollywood, but when the 1940 Golden Globes were held, she, her white talent agent, and an escort sat at the segregated table set for two at the far wall of the room. The hotel where the ceremony was held was a strict no-blacks policy, but allowed her in as a favor. She won Best Supporting Actress, the first black person to ever earn an Oscar, something that wouldn't happen again for another 50 years when Whoopi Goldberg won for her role in Ghost. After Gone with the Wind, she continued acting, again, in maid roles, and also performed in radio and television. She also successfully helped organize the black residents of the historic West Adams neighborhood and save their homes from white residents who were trying to resurrect a racial restriction covenant to drive them out. Her home in that L.A. neighborhood hosted a yearly Hollywood party that Clark Gable would always attend. During World War II, and remember combatants were still segregated, she was a chairman of the Hollywood Victory Committee that provided entertainment for black soldiers. She made many appearances in military hospitals, USO shows, and war bond rallies. She also raised funds for the American Red Cross and gained a reputation for her incredible generosity. Sadly, she died of breast cancer at the age of 52 on October 26, 1952. Thousands of mourners came out to celebrate her life. In her will, she had requested that she be buried at the Hollywood Cemetery, but the owner at the time refused. Instead, she was buried at the Angelus Rosedale Cemetery, where she remains today. However, in 1999, the new owner of the Hollywood Cemetery built a large monument in her honor overlooking the lake. It's the cemetery's biggest attraction. In her 52 years, Hattie McDaniel made her mark as a talented entertainer and a pioneer for other actors during a time of segregation. Her memory and accomplishments remain well known to this day, and she did it all without kids. Another person dedicated to their craft is the famous German pianist and composer Ludwig van Beethoven, Not to be confused with the St. Bernard dog that popularized a hilarious movie franchise. Beethoven, the human, came from a family of musicians. His precise birth date is not exactly known, but he was baptized December 17, 1770. Considering how bad the infant mortality rates were back in those days, Beethoven and his two younger brothers were the only ones that survived out of the seven children in his family. His baptism was probably very soon after his birth, like maybe just hours, because you got to baptize them babies in the rightful church, 
lest their unblessed souls be damned to limbo in case rickets took them out too soon. It seems the plague of horrible parents we see pushing their children to their limits, like in toddlers and tiaras, is not a new phenomenon, as even parents in the 1700s were incredible assholes. Beethoven started on the keyboard, viola, and violin at a very young age, all of which were intense teaching sessions and often reduced the young boy to tears. He'd even be woken up in the middle of the night and dragged out to practice the keyboard by his insomniac teacher. And, like every competitive parent, Beethoven's alcoholic and generally overall dickhead of a father, Johann, saw how great things worked out for young Amadeus Mozart and his surely equally overbearing father. So Johann made sure to also pimp out his eldest surviving son at the ripe old age of six to make sure that everyone knew Ludwig was a child prodigy. Can you imagine how hard that must have been growing up Beethoven and being compared to Mozart? Makes me feel bad for the composer who was born after them and had a helicopter comparing them to both Mozart and Beethoven. That's a pretty tough act to follow. Despite his dysfunctional family, it's pretty clear things worked out relatively well for Beethoven. If you don't count the tragic loss of his brother Casper to tuberculosis, and then years of legal disputes against his sister-in-law for guardianship over his nephew Carl, who later reports, Beethoven's manner was a little overbearing. A broken heart after a rejected marriage proposal that inspired the classically depressing Elise that may or may not have made him resort to regularly visiting prostitutes. The cruel hand of fate that dealt a renowned musician gradual deafness that began at age 28. And then dying prematurely at 56 from a myriad of health issues that likely stemmed from heavy alcoholism. But hey, at least we all know the dun-dun-dun-dun. We can imagine his life would have likely been even more complicated, with screaming young children that could have made him go deaf even sooner. But the man was accomplished, and even though it probably wasn't enough for his father, Beethoven cranked out an impressive amount of incredible, beautiful work. In his 45 years of composing, he wrote 722 pieces, symphonies, concertos, string quartets, piano sonatas, and even an opera. He accomplished this despite his bouts of depression, family issues, health problems, and oh yeah, going deaf. His ability to compose and read music and knowing the notes while being unable to physically hear any more than just a tiny little bit from his left ear speaks to the testament of his talent. He remains one of the most recognized names in history, so that's a pretty impressive legacy, isn't it? Diane Fossey. Diane Fossey was an American primatologist and conservationist, best known for her extensive mountain gorilla studies in Rwanda, and was immortalized in the 1988 movie Gorillas in the Mist, which was based on her book. Fossey found a strong love for animals when she was just a young child, and her mother kept her estranged from her father. Fossey's stepfather was also cruel to her, such as forbidding her to sit at the dinner table with the family. Animals provided the love and acceptance she needed, and at age 19, she enrolled in a pre-veterinary courses at UC California Davis. Her mother and stepfather, displeased with her choice, refused to provide any support, and Fossey supported herself through school with a variety of jobs. She eventually got a job as an occupational therapist at a children's hospital in Kentucky where she befriended a couple who worked there, a husband and wife who were a doctor and secretary, respectively. They invited her to live on their farm where she worked with the animals and experienced the loving family environment she had never before enjoyed. 
They invited her to go on a trip to Africa, which she initially rejected. But then she decided to take out a loan equivalent to one year of her salary, about $8,000, withdrew her life savings, and went on her first trip to Africa in 1963. She stayed for seven weeks. She remained in contact with people she met there, including paleoanthropologist Louis Leakey, who suggested that Fossey engage in a primate study similar to what Jane Goodall was doing with the chimpanzees. She audited a class on primatology, studied Swahili, and returned to Africa in December 1966. In 1967, she established her research center. Fossey was outspoken against wildlife tourism, hunting and poaching, and was known to be extremely hostile towards poachers. It was reported that she would even kidnap local Rwandans suspected of poaching. She allegedly beat a poacher's testicles with a stinging nettle and was able to help arrest several poachers, some who are still in prison. Her favorite gorilla, Digit, was killed by poachers, his head removed and his hands cut off to be sold for ashtrays. Her studies contributed a tremendous amount of knowledge to what primatologists know about gorilla relationships, vocalization, and their diets. Her work was her life, and after discovering she was pregnant, had an abortion and commented, you can't be cover girl for National Geographic and be pregnant. Her relationship with her fiancé eventually drifted apart as she became more involved with her work. Towards the end of her life, her heavy cigarette smoking forced her to use an oxygen tank at the camp's elevation at 9,800 feet, as well as when she hiked and went out for her research. Fossey was discovered murdered on December 27, 1985. Her attacker or attackers cut a hole in her cabin wall and bludgeoned her to death. Robbery was not a motive, as her money, valuables, and passport were not taken. It is believed poachers were responsible for her death, and while some people were arrested and others were suspected, the actual murderer is not truly known. Her drafted will, which she had not signed, bequeathed her assets to support the Digit Fund to fight against poaching. Her mother challenged the will, which she did not refer to any of Fossey's family, and obtained all the assets as the will was not signed. Proof that just because you have kids doesn't mean you're an awesome person. Fossey was buried next to Digit in the gorilla graveyard she had previously constructed. Fossey was 53 when she died, but left behind a powerful legacy, a research institute that continues to make great contributions to conservation efforts and brought greater awareness to gorillas and illegal poaching. Her last diary entry read, When you realize the value of all life, you dwell less on what is past and concentrate more on the preservation of the future. Roger Casement, born September 1, 1864, was an Irish nationalist, diplomat, and humanitarian activist, described as the father of 20th century human rights investigations. Casement was honored for his famous Casement Report, which detailed the atrocities that King Leopold of Belgium committed in the Congo Free State. He was knighted in 1911 for his investigations on human rights against Peruvians, and just five years later, he would be hanged for accusations of treason. As a British consul, a career he held for over 20 years, he bore witness to the atrocities colonialism committed against indigenous people, which inspired him to reject imperialism and sought Irish independence from the British Empire. He had previously believed in the Victoria idea that Africans were savages and were in need of civilization, but once he actually witnessed the cruelty of colonialism, in good conscience, he could no longer ignore these inhumane crimes. The Peruvian Amazon Company, which was registered in Britain and had many British stockholders and members of the board, had operational headquarters in Iquitos, Peru, and was a driving force behind the enslavement of the local Peruvians. Unpaid labor, starvation, rape, 
branding, and casual murder were not uncommon. When Caseman's investigative report on these happenings came to light, the British people were outraged. He helped organize the Anti-Slavery Society as well as Catholic mission interventions in the affected region. And in his home of Ireland, he believed there were parallels between the unrest the British colonizers had created in Peru and what they were also inflicting upon the Irish people. He became involved in the Gaelic League, an organization established to help preserve and revive the Irish language, and helped organize the Irish Volunteer Army. When World War I broke out, he went to Germany and spent 18 months there, trying to secure German support by way of providing guns and military officers for the Irish Army, in exchange for the Irish revolting against Britain. He believed Germany could help lead Ireland to reclaim its independence, and that Germany would be the end to European imperialism. The Easter Rising, or Easter Rebellion, occurred in 1916, led by Irish Republicans attempting to force out British rule. Casement returned to Ireland and actually had tried to prevent the rebellion because he didn't believe it would be successful due to the lack of troops he had hoped Germany would have provided. Casement was captured during this ordeal and detained. A jury deliberated for an hour and declared him guilty of treason, a crime punishable by death. There is a question on Casement's sexuality, based on the infamous black diaries that he purportedly authored, which were filled with details of homosexual relationships plus treasonous accounts of his work against Britain. Whether or not he was actually gay and had written the diaries, or if the British government had crafted the diaries and attempted to discredit him, the authorities used them anyway in a negative light to destroy his reputation. They were also concerned that if Casement was to be executed, he'd be seen as a martyr by the U.S., a country whose opinion was very important to Britain to see if the then-neutral U.S. would join the British cause during World War I. Many people signed petitions to commute his execution, including Irish members of Parliament, British academics, including Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and public figures from the U.S. and South America. Sadly, this did not work out in his favor. Casement reverted back to the Catholic Church on the evening before his execution and died by hanging. Regardless of his role in Irish and British history, as some Irish nationalists today do not accept him as an Irish hero, he championed for international human rights and brought to light some of the worst atrocities resulting from colonialism. And he did this without having kids. All right, our top five countdown. So to keep with today's history theme, our top five are horrible names that parents have given their kids throughout history. And I put this list together and Jared hasn't seen it. I can't wait. So I'm just, I wanted to get his authentic reaction to these. So Jared, would you like to read number five? Let's go. Show me number five. A person named Ah was married in London, England in 1882. Spelled A-H. So wait, so wait just, just Ah? Ah. Uh. Ah. Uh-huh. What about their last name? I don't know. I just had ah. Uh. Ah. Uh. <laughs> okay. Number four. I guess if you ever have like an idea, he'll, he'll be like, are you talking to me? <laughs> <laughs> that would be really confusing. Okay. Number five. Penis was born in Ireland in 1831. Penis. Penis. Where did you get this list? Happy. Penis. So we got England in 1882 and Ireland in 1831. So this came from a site that has some genealogy information, and they compiled a list of some of the worst names, and I picked my favorite ones. And Penis made it to number four, so clearly there's something better coming. 
All right, let's go. Show me number three. Number three. An unfortunate child was born in Illinois in 1880 and received the name Augusta Wind. <laughs> Augusta Wind. August of Wind. Oh, I get it. Oh, I get it. That's so mean. We're, we're like, maybe mom was a little gassy maybe. or something when she gave her. Well, considering how many kids people had back in that day, maybe she just farted and the kid came in. Who knows? Oh, my God. How was your kid born? In Augusta Wind. Augusta Wind. <laughs> All right. Number two. Lasagna <laughs> was born in 1968 in North Carolina. I wonder if they had a sibling named Garfield. <laughs> Lasagna. Okay. All right, Jared, you can read the last one. All right. And the number one. Top five horrible names. And in the spirit of the times, the name was probably more appropriate in the 1870s, England, when families had the average of 6.2 children, one too many. One too many. That was the kid's name. One too many. Can you imagine being that kid and realizing that you were just, you're too much? One too many. One too many. Wow. Yeah, I think I would have been a little upset with my parents once I realized what my name was. Yeah. Oh, yes. Here are our children. There's Jeremiah, Jebediah, Jebediah the second, Susie, Susan, Helga, and one too many. Wow. Fuck this kid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening and check us out, catsoverkids.com. Hope to see you following us on some of our social media pages and we'll see you next time.